Hi, this is Isaac Arthur. Welcome to the show and don't forget to check out this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters. To get access and help support the show while hearing every episode early and ad free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash Isaac Arthur and use my code Isaac Arthur. Good afternoon everyone and welcome to the SFIA monthly livestream Q&A. Please try to keep the questions concise and watch your spelling, and try to be polite to others in the chat. We usually go for about an hour so you probably want to grab a drink and a snack, though we'll take a break about halfway through too. With all that said, welcome and let's get started. Good afternoon and welcome to our monthly live stream Q&A, we'll start taking questions in just a moment but for those of you who are new to this, we take questions from the audience as we go, just put them in the chat window, and as we go through those get relayed to our moderators who are sending my wife who will answer the questions, and she'll be asking me the questions as we go through, and my wife Sarah will go ahead and get us started. I think you mean I'm going to ask you the questions. You said answer, and I think that's your job. You will answer the question. No, no. It's a day off. So. All right. Okay. Well, we are going to kick it off here with a question from Michael Funderburk. He says, Is it possible that all the satellites Mr. Musk and others are putting into orbit could cause the beginning of a Kessler syndrome? Yes. Absolutely. Uh- <laughs> Would you care to elaborate? For those of you who don't know what Kessler Syndrome is, up in space, which is mostly empty, that's why we call it space, uh, things are moving around very quickly. Uh, So they move around a lot and they cover a lot of distance. Everything's moving 100 times faster than your typical bullet. When it hits something, if it hits something, if a little piece of debris hits something, it tends to kick out a piece of debris, and then several hundred more, and then several thousand more. And those little bits of debris, which are also moving fast, can hit something else and cause a kind of a chain reaction that's been called Kessler Syndrome. And if you have a lot of objects up there, we're already worried about a lot of navigational hazards and debris, there's always a concern that what might happen is you might get so much stuff in orbit that when one of these reactions happened, it shredded everything and basically put a cloud of debris around uh, this, the planet. Uh, in fact, that was something that happened in a, a game thing called Rifts, uh, where they couldn't get into space anymore, even though they had technology for it because their entire orbital area was covered in, in debris. Now, the good news about that is we'd have to put a lot more satellites up there for that would really be a huge risk, and most satellites put up right now are relatively small. The other good news is that things that are in damage usually decay even faster than normal things in orbit, and very few things stay in low orbit for more than a decade or two without major assistance. It's usually a lot less than that. It depends on how high orbit they are. Alternatively, medium and high orbit, where things can go out a lot longer in, in, in bad orbits, uh, is just so much bigger and has so much less stuff in it, too, that it's less of a concern. The K2 Despot says, Hey Isaac, what would the upper limit on a reversible or quantum computer that uses quantum memory, given that quantum memory can avoid the Margulis Levitin limit, or at least Wikipedia has said so? Hmm. Trying to give an upper limit on something like quantum, we have so little actual data yet on how quantum computing works from a practical standpoint, is something I'm going to have to take a pass on. Reversible computing, we did look at that in the Ion Stars episode, I think, Civilization at the End of Time. Iron stars, and I don't remember what it was off the top of my head, but I think for that one we found you could put a pocket computer in place if you were doing it at the atomic level that would be able to run uh, something like an entire universe-sized simulation, though don't quote me on that, go see the video folks why, why that was the case. Tobias Brown says he has a question about O'Neill cylinders. How would you deal with something leaving the surface of it, as once you do, you are no longer affected by the gravity? You are still affected by the gravity as much as you were beforehand. This is a common misimpression people get about the O'Neill cylinder, and I've even seen it in some books sometimes. Um, 
I think it was in a Star Wars book, uh, Fear the Jedi, uh, Luke Skywalker jumps up in the air on board while he's rotating space stations, and his feet leave the ground, and, and this other thing goes underneath him. He keeps spinning, and he doesn't. That's not how that works. Uh, you are not being pinned to it by gravity. You are flying forward, and so is it. So if you jump up in the air, you're going to land right back where you were again, minus a slight change for centrifugal and Coriolis forces, which you get on Earth too. How big those are depends on how fast it's spinning, how wide it is, etc. But again, as an example, that same thing applies when you jump up on Earth. It's gravity that pulls you down here, there it's your own inertia. But if you take the uh, image of one, and you start spinning around, what you notice is, here you are, it's spinning around like this. Uh, you spin around, and so you're spinning. It's all you're doing is basically doing a little leap, but you land right in the same place. Because you have the same notion of the side thing you had beforehand. Very interesting. So we have a question from uh, someone. I, I don't know if I have the name here, but it's kind of lengthy, so I'm going to read it in context. Hey, Isaac. I recently came across the original papers on the transcension hypothesis. As you may know, that hypothesis is that ever compacting technology leads to civilizations inhabiting black holes before they can expand too much in space. Hence, no K3s are visible because they have all disappeared into black holes. I'm aware of the shortcomings of the theory in that it con assumes convergence in all civilizations, but I was wondering what your thoughts are on the effects compacting technology like Femotech and black hole computers would have on the Fermi paradox. Sure. This is two different Fermi paradox solutions that they mix well together here. Uh, as to, in terms of convergence, there are very few cases where it's a good example, and uh, one of those is a good example is exactly that kind of converging technology of miniaturization, because you would expect almost every civilization to be focused on building more technology if they are the source that went into space in the first place. So if they are playing around with that kind of compactness and miniaturization, that's a plausible way for them to converge as civilizations and all civilizations did that. Now, the miniaturization thing has another downside. Uh, first, with transession and the black hole ones, it's very like what we discussed in black hole farming and in iron stars. The idea being that if you can run cold, you can run much more efficient with your computing. So what you want to be is someplace where you are far from any heat source, like the edge of the galaxy. And the same note on that at the same time is that it takes a time for a switch to cool down. So if you flip it at a cold temperature, you heat it up. you got to wait for it to cool back down again if you want that efficiency. And uh, the colder you are, the slower it takes to cool each degree as it were. So you run very slow, very efficient, and that's ideal with black holes and something like Hawking radiation. Uh, so the idea might be that they save up all their fuel to burn it later in the universe when things are cheaper, right? And they get more bang for their buck. Now, the miniaturization thing is another common one with the Fermi paradox. The idea being we just keep getting more efficient with our technology, either more compact or more miniaturized, more efficient with the computing, more efficient with our power. There are hard limits on that. You know, you can't build a computer switch that's smaller than an atom. Not without, again, examples like femtotech is the assumption you're using subatomic particles. Well, if that's the case, then you can't get smaller than whatever that subatomic particle is going to be. There will be a hard limit, and you can't keep pushing that indefinitely. But it also assumes that your growth is not going faster and you're improving that metrization. So you're always going to be increasing your size, your growth as a war, in terms of raw population or raw power and energy, even while you're shrinking things down. Once you hit that hard limit, you're going to spill back over and need to expand in real space and, and real mass again. And uh, that is a very short timeline. You know, to the 20th power, right, is a million forward, 1,048,576, right? That's how much you're going to increase in just 20 generations. That's 400 years. The universe is 14 billion years old. It's just not a, a time scale worthy of note in terms of Fermi paradox solutions.
Robert says, can we I'm just do... check you real quick? Is that tell me to look at the camera better or? Scooch over. Oh, but... okay. <laughs> 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 Go because ahead. I want to see that Star Wars elf hat with the ears oh. sticking out over your head. <laughs> Yeah, I could just put it on after the break. <laughs> That's good. Okay. okay, now that we interrupted that, we have a question here from Robert. If you're curious, my wife sometimes gives me little hand signals like speed up, slow down, uh, and get on. And this it. one so, was scooch yeah, over. This was a scooch over, I guess. So. <laughs> now we can all admire those elf ears. Now, if you Excuse hold your me. head up straight, there we go. Robert says, can we realistically operate telescopes on the far side of the moon anytime soon? Um, I guess it depends on what you mean by anytime soon. The one nice thing about far side telescopes uh, on the moon is that we could actually make them out of a liquid metal like mercury. Um, there are not very many things that actually act as a liquid in a vacuum and you can always pressurize just a little bit if you needed to to get, get what you need to have a liquid. But and then you could just spin it around and the way in which you spin that telescope around will control how you know, mirrors convex or concave. Um, so those make very nice zenith type telescopes. We do a few of those operating. Um, but it's also just a great place for astronomy in general. There's nothing stopping us right now from sending a, uh, a satellite to orbit the moon to pick up the data from one, because uh, it couldn't send it directly to us through the moon, and then just dropping a big satellite there, same as we do with Hubble. It's expensive, uh, but there's no real technical bar to it anymore than it was with Hubble. Robert had a follow-up to that as well. Do you think that we should and will replace our SIBO telescope with the moon one, or build it on the surface of Earth or Mars too? Oh, no, and thanks nice for one, everything. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, I, uh, I'm sure a lot of you heard about Arecibo um, uh, finally breaking down the storm. We haven't really been using it for a while, and it's been more of a tourist thing than anything else, but it just it was such that core piece of SETI, the Arecibo telescope in Puerto Rico. And uh, my platoon sergeant actually was down there visiting it last year and sent me photos from it, my old platoon sergeant over in Domage. Um, and uh, it's just a sad thing to lose that. But in terms of replacing it with something on the moon, I'd set off with just building a new one. But uh, yeah, the moon would be a great place to be building Aerosible 2, and I would definitely be down for that. Uh, however, I guess the question would be whether or not somebody like Elon Musk or, um, or uh, uh, Jeff Bezos was down for that. <laughs> <laughs> Raven609, what are some advantages or disadvantages to colonizing a system where the planets are very close to one another, like TRAPPIST-1? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, close is always a relative term. We have an episode that we come out in January that I just finished writing a couple weeks ago called Colonizing Red Dwarfs. And one of the things we point out there is that those are very tightly compact solar systems bordering on moon systems like Jupiter has. Um, it's almost all advantages. Uh, there are a few downsides because things are a lot close together, especially something like a Dyson Swarm. It, things are a lot denser and you have to worry a little bit more about collision scenarios there. But for the most part, if your solar system is more compact, it just makes colonization easier. Uh, communication faster. The only downside is you're more vulnerable to military action because you have less time to see them coming and take action and it uh, costs less to send stuff as well. So I suppose uh, if you live in a more compact system like uh, a moon system around a gas giant or around a red dwarf, it helps to have uh, neighbors who you like and get along with. <laughs> so, <laughs> good good for your neighborhood re uh, relations policy. Household Adventure says, Hey Isaac, what are your thoughts on civilizations that start closer to the galactic core where stars are more dense? The loose notion is that if there were all the civilizations, they'd more likely have started near the core because you had higher levels of metallicity early on. Um, downside, of course, you have a lot more supernovas, uh, both in terms of what's composing the things out there. Uh, stars are not evenly distributed by, comp you know, by type, stellar classification. 
um, and uh, because it's just much denser. Um, it's a great place to colonize. Once you have your radiation shielding in place, it's a great place to go. It's not that radioactive, but I'd be very pessimistic about anything in the actual central bulge being a good place to, to live a classic uh, Earth-like planet life on. Um, but uh, in terms of civilization, it's just a little bit close to the core. Yes, and that's probably even preferential as a place to start with the obvious caveat that if uh, if one of our great filters is things like galactic explosions at the core or major supernova events, then obviously it would not be a good place to start life off at. Johnny Wings says, how will an interplanetary civilization deal with time? Will every planet have their own year system? And what counts as a minute when you're dealing with time dilation? I think we looked at that in a lot of detail and I think it was... Uh, Intercellular civilizations and time, maybe back last year, but basically, I think you end up having almost everybody lock their clock to Earth as their main one. Now, plants are going to use their own schedule, right? And I think a lot of them would start off by not using time zones. I think you just have whatever the capital of Mars was, uh, Aries 1, that's the time, and everybody else uses that as their clock for uh, you know what time of official day it is. And I think anytime you go to a new solar system, they're almost going to have to do that because they're not going to want to waste time converting back and forth. But when you think about the solar system here, where will most people in space live? In orbit around Earth. For centuries to come, the vast majority of people who don't live on Earth are going to live around Earth. It just is the more natural migration place. You're not going to want to use the local calendar um, you know, of every individual planet for solar system traffic, but they probably will. If you live on you know, balls, you're going to adapt that schedule. You're talking about millions of people. So you're going to have your own local calendar, but you'll probably switch over to an Earth standard time as your commerce one. And you might even switch over to something like metric time, you know, the uh, old Star Trek starting method where you said, oh, here's time zero, and we just measure things in kiloseconds and megaseconds and uh, gigaseconds. And a gigasecond is about 30 years, for instance. So you might do your time all based on that. You don't even worry about what time of day it is. You just mark it out perpetually. D.T. Finham, hey, how do you think religion and belief systems would evolve as humanity ventures into the stars? Would they become even more widespread in a post-scarcity society looking for purpose or die off? I would take as a given that you'd have more of them just because you have more people. Um, you know, there's anytime you have a major religious movement, you see diversification of that, too. Uh, like the Protestant Reformation has given birth to how many hundreds of churches. And when you start spreading that around to areas that can't talk to each other quickly, that are separated by light years, then you have to assume there'd be a lot of variations. Uh, the obvious opposite of that is if you can prove definitively one of these systems is definitely correct, then things would converge in that direction, one would think. so. But by default, I would tend to assume that you would always see more diversification, um, barring extreme tyranny situation, uh, more diversification of political systems, economic systems, and uh, religious you know, ideologies, things like that. There are any number of factors that could interfere with that, but that would be the default to me. Brian Abair, how soon will moon crater cities be possible? Today. I mean, we could do them today. If we really want to, we could do them today. Um, what's got to be there is there has to be a reason why you have thousands of people living there. You know, it's not a city if it doesn't have in, in a certain population. Here in Ohio, we use the definition that something is a city if it's got 5,000 people and it's incorporated. Uh, if it's not incorporated, it's not a city. And if it has less than 5,000 people, it's a village. So if it's a moon crater city, it's got 5,000 people in it. We would need to have a lot of people living on the moon. And actually, you know, that's not like a mountain you subsidize like McMurdo in Antarctica. There's, what, 500 people there. Um, 5,000 is quite a push. So, 
and plural, cities, and that does include all people living in rural areas around it. What are they doing there? Um, I would tend to think about a century for something like that because you have to have that first economic thing that's actually pushing it, right? And again, it wouldn't be like a military base. That's not a city. That's that's a military base. You might have a city pop around it, but then that would have a certain population in the base for. So until you have something in space that I would say has to be at least a $100 billion a year sector of profit for that area, then I would say no, no cities up there. Robert Miller says, hey, Isaac, I've been wondering lately if an... Um I should have. Ecumenopolis lasted long enough. Yes, Ecumenopolis lasted long enough. What would be a plan to protect the city from continental drift and volcanic activity? Hmm. I mean, a real Ecumenopolis, the, the real deal, as we've pointed out, doesn't necessarily have to be the classic Coruscant or Tranto image of a steel and concrete paved over everything. Um, indeed, you really only get to that level if you and of multi levels and all that if you had like a quadrillion people on it. When you're building to that kind of degree, uh, the way you deal with continental drift is to move your continents. And I think we discussed how to do that in the Machios Awards episode. You can, if you want to, move or, or stop moving continents. You could cut your plant open in various ways and you know, basically replace it bit by bit until it was a sequence of shells. Um, and uh, was I think in 40K they have something called a hab quake for when they had the hives or hive quakes when they're just these giant messy pyramid structures that have been built up to house billions of people uh, something breaks, falls, or shadows and the whole thing just jumbles like a big thing of jello. Um, you would have that kind of thing to worry about in a lot of those cases and those would probably be a lot more of a concern than continental drift but you don't go building things like that until you're real confident you can deal with uh, you know 9.0 earthquakes casually um, but then you might just build in a place that aren't that tectonically active too. Okay, we have a question here from Void. Nuclear bombs works too. You can always just nuke stuff to fix that kind of problem. A lot. (laughs) (laughs) Are you finished? Yes. Thank you. Void Astra asks, do you play Elite Dangerous? No. No, I think somebody actually even sent me a thing to join on Steam, but... I have not had as much time for games as I like. I think it's a first-person shooter, and the last one of those I actually played, I don't know if it was Left 4 Dead 2 or Mass Effect 3. Uh, so that for those of you who are familiar with those games, that would tell you how out of uh, date I am on those. So. Mo Pippinger says, Hi, Isaac and Sarah. That was nice of them to say hi to me, too. When I talk to people about ideas like megastructures and sublight interstellar travel, people tend to be bewildered. How can I explain these ideas in a concise and effective way? I was going to joke, you could just tell them to go watch the videos. Oh, <laughs> that is kind of how the original video got started, the megastructural summary video from 2014. I had some authors who I was talking to about the general idea that they used planets too much in, in their settings. There was always these planets and always these basically these single ward planets, like a little town on them for the entire planet. And that, that probably wasn't likely to be our future, but if they want to do that kind of setup, they should just use a megastructure like an O'Neill cylinder anyway. And I got so tired of explaining it all that I, I just went ahead and put together a compilation video of all the various megastructures and how they worked. And that's how the channel got started. So uh, I don't know if there really is an easy way to explain them. It usually takes me about 30 minutes to feel like I've given a basic summary. So, Mo, you might have a new idea for a, a, a channel. <laughs> <laughs> and again, we could actually use more videos on those. So, by all means, if someone feels like doing some more in-depth videos on those, make them, send them out there, you know, and, and God bless. So. Vi Sci-Fi, how would you begin construction of orbital rings? Build up and lift into orbit or ring Earth and drop um, and drop? Hmm. Um, 
the the usual thought is that it would be easier if you could build them on the ground and float them up, but that's in the modern context. You don't build an orbital ring unless you have so much traffic moving back and forth to space that it justifies things' existence. Because they can get your stuff into space for like a dollar a pound or a dollar a kilo kind of cost ranges. That's amazing, right? Problem is, it's, you're talking about a multi-billion dollar infrastructure at the minimum. You know, probably more like hundreds of billions of dollars or way more to build one of these things and probably billions to maintain it every year. So you only do that when you have enough traffic to justify that. Um, and don't compare it to just launch costs. Remember, the cost of fuel, which is what we're looking to save there, is a tiny portion of rocket costs, only a few percent. Uh, so you need to have tons and tons of cargo going up to space every hour, every minute maybe, to justify its cost. That implies you've got quite the infrastructure in space already, and probably even sourcing that from the moon. In which case, build the thing up in space and put it there. <laughs> Zim wants to know if you prefer Benjamin Sisko or Jean-Luc Picard. Jean-Luc Picard. Oh my. we got to get you up to that next generation stuff. We've been watching TOS together. Like Jean-Luc Picard, everyone's favorite Frenchman from England. Um, ben Sisko. Uh, it's 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 a it's close, but uh, I guess it depends on, on on whether you which one would I rather be working for. And uh, actually, I'd rather work for Janeway. Uh, it seems like she's more of my kind of captain as a as a day to day walking person. But I just like Ben Sisko. He's he's awesome. <laughs> 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 and um, obviously, everybody loves Jean Luc Picard. But yeah, Ben Sisko. DeWall has a super chat. Thank you for your contribution. And asks, wouldn't the orbital debris eventually either fall into the atmosphere or coalesce into rings? I think after a Kessler syndrome, eons later, the rings would be very pretty. Let's look on the bright side. <laughs> That's true there. You're going to have to ask that again because I'm a little bit distracted trying to remember where we were on Star Trek. Um, <laughs> so we are about to finish season two was... and we'll go to season three and then we'll have to survive season one of TNG, which is not the best season. What was the question again? I think the question was on orbital debris falling into the atmosphere or coalescing into rings, whether that would be pretty at, um, after a Kessler syndrome. It'd be absolutely gorgeous. <laughs> How long would we have to wait to see that? Uh, well, probably within minutes of the uh, Kessler event uh, actually occurring, um, it would start to fall down. It would be its most intense in, in, the, in those first few weeks, uh, potentially for years, though. Um, you know, Earth has probably had rings in the past. Uh, Jupiter has a ring. All the gas giants have rings. Um, Saturn probably did not have such a glorious ring at some point in the past and won't in the future. Uh, you get big impacts. You have things like that floating around. They'll come down. Um, and the good news is, of course, you'd be like, well, it looks very pretty until it lands on you. But I would imagine most Kessler syndrome events would, based on our orbital infrastructure, would not be the sort of thing that caused you to have, you know, megaton objects falling out of the sky and landing on the ground. Um, and even if it's just kilotons of objects hitting the ground, we're probably not going to have anything really bad happen to anyone not directly underneath it. But it'll be gorgeous to watch, to be sure. <laughs> Hopefully you'd be have to have time to like, record it and report it, too. <laughs> Merv Johnson, thank you for your donation. And Merv wants to know if you could have a Han Solo-like private ship owner in the context or a Dyson Swarm or migrant fleet darting between Habs and motherships. What would that be like in ship and lifestyle? In both cases, absolutely yes. Uh, when you're inside of a Dyson Swarm, uh, at least if we're talking about one where it's mostly built of things on a scale with a neocellulose, smaller or bigger, you know, but not all of them plant-sized things, of course then your ability to drive between plant, you know, between habitats is easier uh, than building a car 
it is easier and cheaper to fly a thousand kilometers through empty space to an object that is more or less the same relative velocity as than it is to drive to the nearest nearing town here on the ground. You use less fuel. Our biggest trick there, of course, is making something that's reasonably airtight. And even that only has to be reasonably airtight because you're only going to be in flight for maybe 20, 30 minutes, an hour, or something like that. Um, inside a migrant fleet, just as easy, if not easier. With Dyson swarms, we assume they tend to be a little bit scattered out, although they might tend to conglomerate together in small packs, just because they're trying to take up that space and absorb all that sunlight. Uh, with a migrant fleet, they just want to be far enough apart from each other that if one of them gets hit, it doesn't kill everybody else. Uh, and you know, we can hit it near light speed, that's quite a collision. So, but even then, uh, something like a, a, a board of the size of your fist in one of those ships might give off an explosion bigger than the, uh, I can't remember any of that giant bomb they set off in, in the Soviet Union, but the Castle Bravo being the American version, would be worse than that, but if you're 100 kilometers away, that's not going to hold you much in space. Uh, so migrant fleets won't be too close to each other, but they'd be close enough that little ships like that could run back and forth and run back and forth with virtually no fuel. And you don't have to really worry about the same level of engineering because they're only moving maybe a few hundred meters an hour, sorry, a few hundred miles an hour, uh, meters per second, and they don't really need to have really good quality control on anything else other than radiation shielding. So yes, you could have definitely inside a migrant fleet uh, like the uh, Quarns had in Mass Effect, or Battlestar Galactica, and yes, in a Dyson Swarm, you have your Han Solo ships. Will Hapricorn, do you think a Europa lander mission would be feasible in the near future, given the possible penance on the surface? If so, how? Um, the problem with going to Europa is that it's not really the surface that interests us. I mean, there's science to be done there, to be sure. We could learn an awful lot studying some of the ice craters there and seeing what the composition was from the cryovolcanoes that might have erupted, but we want to go below. We want to melt through a 10-kilometer sheet of ice, probably, to get to the water below. And uh, right now, that would probably your best way to do that would be to send a really big satellite compared to what we normally send now that had a, uh, a, a fairly large radio, uh, well, basically an isotope on the end of it that was going to melt that ice that had a long fiber optic cable and slash tow cable that could lower 10 kilometers down through it, which had to be pretty sturdy, even if the gravity is a lot weaker there. So basically, you melt your way through and look at the ocean below. Uh, something like that would be pretty big. So, yeah, I think we could probably design something like that easy enough nowadays, but it'd be expensive to send. Uh, you'd probably be looking at, you know, tens of billions to send something right now. That's a ballpark figure, but it's definitely inside the ability of us to do if we really wanted to. Like, we got some indication that it was life there. Isaac Bordeaux says, Hi, Isaac. What is the least likely and far out there solution to the Fermi Paradox? Um... I mean, that needs qualification that's reasonably sane, or I guess with the far out there would probably not be it. Um, hmm. I'd say that far out there means reasonably unsane. Reasonably unsane. <laughs> um, hmm. The, the strangest ones I've ever heard. Um, I, that's a reality TV show. I think that's probably the big one. That's a very popular one that uh, not just there's a simulation or not just that we're being kept in a zoo, but that the primary purpose of that is for other aliens to watch us. And the reason for that is while that sounds like one of the better solutions for those of us who are used to it, um, it's also one of the worst solutions. It sounds crazy that you'd have an entire planet set up for that purpose. Even crazier than having an entire planet as in Douglas Adams set up to figure out the answer to life, the universe, and everything. Having one that was just for a reality TV show. The problem is it's so much easier to simulate all that stuff 
without using fully intelligent organisms the whole time. <laughs> and I don't really think we're all that interesting that, that if you got all that simulation power, you find all planet that exciting. So that would be the one that will simulate it for the purpose of entertainment of outsiders. <laughs> Bob Joe says, Hello, Isaac Arthur. I would like to know what you think about the Orion's Arm Universe project. I love Orion's Arm. It's been a while since I've actually contributed anything over there. Um... If you go looking through, you'll probably find some links that go to the videos here. Uh, and if you look at the original episode, the cover art's actually from one of the, one of the pages there. It was done by Steve Bauer, who's another one of the big, big contributors over there. Um, before the show started, I tend to be more active with the Ryan's arm. And uh, unfortunately, the show's kind of taken up that part of my brain, so I, I focus mostly on it. But I love a Ryan's arm. Some of the fiction is hit and miss, because there's kind of a shared writing project, for those of you who didn't know. Orion's Arm is meant to be a hard sci-fi setting with ultra-realism that people can write short stories inside using the shared technology and setting. Uh, and it's great for that. Uh, and the Encyclopedia Galactica they have there is a great source for all sorts of high-tech concepts like the ones we talked about on the show. Um, but uh, obviously some of the individual stories can range from very good to fan fiction. So, A question from Trevor Nielsen, and thank you, Trevor, for your donation. As technology has progressed, mysticism has adopted with it. Could there become a techno-priest class, an evolution of religion based on technology? You could argue we have one like that right now. I mean, usually what people mean when they say that is they're either talking about the, the techno-mages from Babylon 5 who have turned into have a magical system, or the tech-priests of Mars from Warhammer 40k who have turned it into an atrocity. Um, <laughs> and I love that saying, though. Uh, it's easy enough to imagine that the folks who control the, the bits of knowledge would also be very critically tied into whatever the religion of the system was. Uh, that's what it was for us until several years ago. Uh, all of our scientists were basically in seminary schools and they either went on to become clergy or it wasn't so much for them and they focused more on natural philosophy. Later on, but it was settled out. So there was one historical example. There are plenty of those. Um, I'd say throughout history, probably around half the time, though an anthropologist might disagree or know better, we say about half the time, whoever was the main educated scholar class was also the clergy class. So it's very plausible. And one could even make the argument that in some ways, modern technology has almost become a bit of a similar oil to you know, magical religion of the past, and thus we feel that more right now more technologists. Um, but, uh, so it's, it's quite likely, but I don't know that necessarily it follows the same kind of construct. Um, there's a, a quote about that from Isaac Asimov's Foundation series, the very first short story. The cool thing about the religion of science was that its miracles actually worked, which is a, a point that may or may not factor into how well it actually does as a potential religion if people were doing that or not. So. Okay, I want to fit in just a couple more questions here before the break. Mark Zimmerman says, What do you think the future of a large-scale national democracy based on Earth would be as it moves settlements further and further out into the solar system? Would they be reliant on early voting? Um, for those of you who didn't know, my, my, other, my day job, as it were, is, is running elections, which was quite a lot of fun this year. Um, and <laughs> presidential election years are never fun. Um, one of the reasons why the United States used a system where every state runs its own election system is because that system was invented before we had um, telephones and uh, overnight you know, delivery of, of things. We had to run everything by post. So basically every state did its own thing, conducted its own thing, and usually every county or local area conducted their own thing, reported it up, and they sent their delegation to go vote on a thing later on. You kind of have to go back to a system like that. Not to say that system, though. We need to start doing with anything beyond the interplanetary scale. Now... 
at the end of ten, you know planetary scale, you can still do. Everybody votes at the same time. We'll have a, a given day for it. The time lag is not that bad in the solar system. Even Pluto is a day back and forth. Right? You get out to the Kuiper Belt, to beyond, sorry, beyond the Kuiper Belt, into what we think of as the inner outer cloud. You start looking at days, then weeks, and even months. You get to the interstellar scale, you are talking decades. You know, so obviously there's some challenges there if you try to have everybody vote at the same time, and the question of what time they should be voting at. Um, you know, should they all be? Let's say that you had a rule that said everybody had to vote after the last debate they had between the two candidates, and no one was allowed to vote till then. So you're out on Pluto, your pores would open for 12 hours after they opened on Earth, and then they run for whatever time they're going to be open to, and you send the results back 12 hours later, and everyone's sitting at home going, "What's wrong with Pluto? It's been like two days." So, you know. um, but I think that 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 kind of depends on whether you want to have a centralized power, or federated power, or more confederate setup. That's going to be a much more you know your mileage may vary. But inside one solar system, you should be able to use all the major systems that we see in play on Earth. Um, and again, most of those systems predate telephones, so uh, you know, or even anything like a fast postal service. So the last question I'm going to ask for uh, pre-break is from WPR. And he wants to know, when humanity is living away from the Earth, how will Santa deliver the gifts? Wormholes. <laughs> Same way he does now. Wait, will the reindeer be able to do that too? Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> there was a, a, a rather famous old essay that was floating on the internet for a long time that calculated how fast Santa would have to move in order to actually get to everybody's house in one night. And I found that he would explode a lot of the reindeer. Um, <laughs> Poor just reindeer. The, well, yeah, the sheer speed he was moving at too fast, right? Uh, as a result of this, um, and, and you know, he has basically moving at relativistic speeds, it stands the reason the only way he could possibly have done doing that is through more holes in time manipulation in the first place. Since those are of play, that means he will not have any problems whatsoever delivering planets and gifts to other planets. Therefore, children on Pluto will get their gifts on Christmas, same as everybody else. Well, that's good news. And on that note, we should probably take a quick break. We'll be taking a break for a couple of minutes, so it's a great time to grab a drink and a snack, as well as get more questions in to our moderators in the chat for Sarah to read to me in the second half of our show. There will probably be a shorter break than usual since our mid-livestream breaks were traditionally intended to let me grab a cigarette, and I quit a couple months back. I've been holding off on mentioning that to make sure I actually successfully did quit and stayed quit. And a lot of the audience has been encouraging me to quit for some time, and since I finally did, I want to thank all of you who had suggested that and let you know that I had done so. And for anyone who was on the fence about trying to quit, I can only speak from my own experience, but going cold turkey is not a lot of fun, but it can be done, and sooner is always better than later. Speaking of turkey, since we're in Thanksgiving weekend, I hope everyone had a good Thanksgiving, complete with stuffing your stomach to capacity and took some time to think on what they're thankful for. We spend a lot of time looking at the future, and hopefully how awesome it will be, and it's often easy to forget, especially this year, how much we have to be thankful for as a civilization, and I hope you have plenty to be thankful for individually. I know I do, the show has continued to grow in 2020 and continues to let me do something I truly love, which is always a wonderful quality to have in your job. Uh, Speaking of jobs and being thankful, my wife Sarah Fowler Arthur, the young lady reading the questions off during our live streams, was just elected this November to represent our District of Ohio in the House of Representatives, and will be leaving her post on the Ohio Board of Education as a result, where she's served for the last eight years, since her first election in 2012. We also just celebrated our six-month wedding anniversary and one-year anniversary of when I asked her to marry me, 
so those are two other things I'm thankful for this year. I think most of us will be glad to see the back side of this year, 2020 has been a rough one, and I won't miss it either, but it's also been a very good year, and an awful lot of this has been from the show, and I want to thank all of you for tuning in every week. I hope 2020 has given you some things to be thankful for too, even if it's just being thankful the year is almost over and we can head into a brighter future. And now, back to the show and discussing that brighter future. Okay, I think that was the end of that one, so I'm only wearing this for a couple of questions, that's that, 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 that goes <laughs> off. Uh, let's go ahead and get back to it. Oh my. Well, it fits your head better there than it did yeah, hanging it really up as wall well, decor. I have a gigantic head and this thing's not really shaped for that size. So. <laughs> <laughs> are, are, okay, the first question is from me. Are you planning on helping Santa explore those wormholes and deliver gifts to Pluto this, no, this Christmas? No, I don't believe in wormholes. <laughs> Fictional. Not like Santa. <laughs> Okay, Joel Krudsma says, I have a question, which which probability would you put on a runaway greenhouse, making the Earth practically uninhabitable during this or the next century? Uh, not high. Um, the, the thing about a runaway greenhouse effect is that that notion mostly comes from early studying of Venus, um, and uh, you could definitely wreck a planet by putting too much carbon dioxide on it, uh, and we don't really know what the runaway point on that would be, but... I don't think we actually get the plant hot enough through carbon dioxide to actually uh, to take it up to what we call to like anything approaching the Venusian temperatures. Um, and uh, well before you got to that point in terms of, of concentration, uh, you know, carbon dioxide has many qualities to it. Uh, when you're breathing it, one of the lesser known ones is it makes you stupid. <laughs> so um, this actually comes up in classrooms that aren't well ventilated. The, the students will start to get dumb after a while because you get lethargic breathing the stuff in. Uh, and so ventilation very important, by the way. <laughs> uh, so, and of course, buildings always have a little bit higher concentration of them. But if your actual atmosphere gets that concentrated with it, uh, well, you won't have anyone who is able to think about how to solve the problem anymore. <laughs> <laughs> um, if two nearby planets develop intelligent life, how would their ability to communicate through telescopes and other means to affect their development? What was the first piece again? If two nearby planets develop intelligent life, how would their ability to communicate through telescopes and other means affect their development? Uh, I mean, unless it was a double planet, like where basically the moon was a planet too, they'd still be far enough away that they could only have even know that the other planet held any kind of life or had the potential for it when they got to um, maybe like the 19th century, about when we started looking at Mars in enough detail to think that we were seeing canals, you know, and things like that. At that point in time, um, I mean, it would be really freakishly unlikely they both happen to be at the same level of development, but if they were, I would assume that they would... Huh. I don't know. I, I don't know how you go about communicating a case like that. I feel like I'd like to explore that more. <laughs> Might be a very good story, but... Because uh, uh, the only thing you'd be able to actually set out that would be bright enough if we talk about visually would be something like a nuke. Um, and I've ever thought that was a good way to open up conversations. Um, I mean, radio would be the obvious one. You'd typically, you'd be basically, if they were running on the same parallel timeline to us, they'd be getting radio about the same time they'd be able to look at those plants in enough detail to even believe they have life on them. You know, they, it's like we can look at Mars with anything other than an actual orbital satellite around it with enough detail to 
pick out something like a forest even so probably radio i think that might flow into this question from cosmo explorer 101 if humanity becomes interstellar could the languages of other star systems become so different that communication becomes nearly impossible Yes and no. It could easily do that. But the thing is, while you're separating space and time an awful lot, um, I mean, if your neighbors are 10 light years away from you and you're sending signals back and forth, that means you're getting those signals 10 years old. A language has to shift very quickly for that to be the case. And, you know, someone who's 10,000 light years away from you, yes, they're going to have such a language shift that if you were not talking to them at all in the meantime, but um, you still have all those planets in between who presumably had better tracks of what was going out there they were uh, writing in the meantime we could translate for you so you might send messages back and forth down a chain but more importantly if you're doing interstellar communication you presumably have computers records and archives and you could be checking what everybody's language from 10,000 years ago was since you had it you, you have those recordings still just to demonstrate that I've been paying attention to how we were watching Star Trek you would have an interstellar decoding device of course oh yeah like the universal translator yeah I always like the baby fish from Douglas Adams better though so <laughs> Stick a little fish in your eel. <laughs> Anyone who has not watched Star Trek over Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, you should, when you when this is over, you should go and do that. Not immediately. When <laughs> that this means, is over. That means that you have another that. 20 minutes before you're allowed to go do that. <laughs> Alexander Seaman says, how long do you think it will take for space colonies to develop their own cultures and identities? It's going to horrify people, by the way, but I still have not seen the Mandalorian Star Wars thing yet. Um, speaking of Yoda. Um... <laughs> How long would it take to develop their own distinct cultures? Unless they're a sleeper ship. Like, if they're freezing themselves for the journey, they should start developing the culture the moment they leave. And I don't even mean the sense of, like, well, they're being divorced the moment they're gone. Um, there's such a cultural shift just adapting to living on board a spaceship like that. And as you get further and further away from your own civilization uh, and all that light light, that by the time they get to that new solar system, they already have developed a new civilization. It's not going to be like, well, we've come here to change our ways from the Earth life. They'll be like, well, we've come here to change our ways from the spaceship we came on and that, that you know, horrible autocracy of the captain and, 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 and all of his crew pushing us around. Now we have our own separate independent area, just like they had on Earth. You know? so, um, so, I mean, almost right away. Kobe asks, what are our chances of reaching a cyberpunk-style transhumanist future, and how far away are we? Um, I mean, if you're talking like a Shadowrun-style one, where there are all, all like demons that pop out of things, uh, hopefully not, save for a Rift-style one. Uh, <laughs> I don't really think that, I mean, I my favorite movie to this day is still Blade Runner. That's like the original cyberpunk film, and then you've got... Uh, Gibson's Neuromancer book series and like uh, Snow Crash by Neil Stephenson. Um, those paint an image of a future that has been very popular for a long time now in the cyberpunk genre that is still based off of like the 1980s Max Headroom uh, early VR notion of how the future will be. I don't think that specifically is likely to ever happen as a result. As to a lot of the technologies in place, like being able to live in a virtual reality or being able to live in augmented reality, very soon. You know, we're already kind of there in some ways. Um, we're seeing more of a, a changes. It's not like we'd expect to be. But like the smartphone, for instance, is already a very cyberpunky thing that we don't think about that way. Um, smart glasses, for those who have them, you know, Google glasses. Uh, many other things like augmentation, wait and see. You know, we already have cybernetic augmentation. We've got those cochlear devices. we got, you know, pacemakers and other things. More will come. And in our lifetimes. 
Plastic Pinocchio, thank you for your donation, and his question is, Life on Venus, are we ready to pound the gavel or not? I just can't get how all that phosphine could be there. Great stream, as always. Uh, I am agnostic on the actual phosphorus content of uh, Venus for now. One of the jokes we had on there mm -hmm. is most people who will pay attention to the astronomy of it in uh, war overjoyed or you know angry about the discovery of phosphorus or the reported discovery on phosphorus i think i was the only person who was irritated by it because we had an episode discussing phosphorus coming out right then that was getting ready to air when that news broke and i had to go back and change it the last minute uh and thank you to one of our editors jerry Cohen, for helping me do that and mark uh, walborn too one of our other editors uh for helping with uh, some of the chemistry on that because um, we do a last minute change and, and report on that um I don't know how much phosphorus that we're going to find out actually exists in the form of phosphine on Venus when we actually are able to do real hard looks at it as opposed to these initial evidences, but it's not going to be a lot. As to life itself there, I just don't see it. Maybe microbes in the upper atmosphere, but I suspect if we got there, we find out they are actually from some meteorite on Earth that burned up while it was landing there. <laughs> The Real Belieth asks, what are the downsides of life in a space habitat compared to life on a planet's surface? Um, when you look up at the beautiful night sky, you see your neighbor's backyard. <laughs> that's, that's the biggest one. You know? that's, so I guess uh, it depends on whether you're a city mouse or a country mouse to start yeah. with. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there are ways you can fake a sky in one of those, but basically you look up and you're seeing somebody else's down. You know, um, Other than that, you know, there are obviously advantages living on a planet. Uh, certain military advantages, you can dig down deep in the ground to protect yourself from bombardment. Uh, whereas when you're living inside one of those, on the other hand, you're all a bit safer from minor stuff because all that protective ground is over you from an outsider perspective, not under you, with just some thin air above you. Um, you can set the temperature to whatever you want it to be. You can set the air pressure to whatever you want it to be. You can set the gravity to whatever you want it to be. You can set all of them individually to whatever you want to be, and you can change them. Um, you can change the day length. You can change the year length. You can mess around with them a lot more. It, to me, it's always been the kind of question of what's the advantage of, you know, planet versus only your own or habitat. Um, cave versus hut. You know? <laughs> or cave versus skyscraper, you know? Uh, I'll, I'll go with, with the buildings we made as opposed to the ones we found uh, and maybe tweaked a little bit. Just as long as you're not delaying Christmas. No, we're not delaying Christmas. That will always go out on time. <laughs> uh, Costas asks, how connected is Warhammer 40K with reality? I hope not at all. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, anyone who's familiar with that setting, uh, if you ever find yourself thinking, yeah, I wish I lived in 40K, you need to, to reread that setting some more or report to an asylum. Uh, which, to be fair, is, is usually how you get promoted in, in 40K, is to report to an asylum or to do so. Um, 40k has certain realistic aspects though in terms of a setting it's there is no setting that has ever done the idea of a galaxy sprawling empire in in terms of the sheer scale of, of population and size and administrative you know inertia and just the idea that messages could get lost for decades and whole worlds might get forgotten about um no one has done that setting that better than the 40k setting no one has covered the sheer scale of civilizations better than them in almost every other aspect, it's so unrealistic. It, it, it's it's ten times worse than Star Wars. <laughs> Chasm Shack. Hi, guys. Wondering how long you think before we start creating a Dyson Swarm and harvesting the power of the sun. 
We have an episode coming on that. Um, I can't remember if it's this upcoming month of December, or I think it is December, like the end of December. We'll be looking at how you could do a low-tech culture to civilization. And I think we'll start making the initial movements towards that in this century even. But I think the 22nd century will be an awful lot about beginning building towards that. We won't need one that actually has all the population aspects of a Dyson Swarm uh, in the sense of, you know, trillions or neocylinders for centuries to come. But that power collection, we'll build it as fast as we have reason to make use of the power cheaper than it costs to build the next elements to it or maintain them. The Game Crasher, the Master Gamer, thank you for your donation. How close can a star be to another star before a civilization needs to worry about radiation problems? Um, really close. <laughs> uh, the biggest radiation problem you'd have to be worrying about is them overheating your planet by the natural light there. Um, like, I think we covered this in the episode uh, somewhere on Jupiter. If Jupiter turned into a red dwarf of the smallest size, uh, it would have no heating effect on Earth of any practical level. Um, because it, it, the amount of radiation with those gives off is like a 10,000 what the sun does, and it's five times further away. So you're dealing with something that's a little bit brighter than the moon. Um, things like Proxima Centauri that are a quarter of a light year away from Alpha Centauri, they're the brightest star, barely. But even then, I don't think Proxima Centauri is the brightest star from the Alpha Centauri system. Uh, thinking about it, a star as bright as ours should be brighter than uh, Proxima Centauri. You know, it's just, our sun is just that much brighter that it being 16 times further away overrides that. Um, normally with like something like our sun, if our sun was to magically appear where Jupiter was, then we'd have another star in the sky that was a 25th as bright as our sun was. And that could have be enough to actually tip us over the, into like a greenhouse overheat. But otherwise, not a real concern. Thank you, Merv Johnson, for your uh, second donation and for just saying hi to Sarah. <laughs> She is much more likable than I am. <laughs> I didn't say that. I just said that it was nice of them to say hi to me. <laughs> We've had several people asking how likely life extension is going to happen in the next couple of decades and whether or not it will be extended enough for immortality. You know, everybody always asks me uh, what technology I'm really hoping to live to see, and I always tell them life extension technology. <laughs> <laughs> I think that, uh, I mean, to take a book, uh, to pay or phrase, I'll be degree on the topic. Uh, all, all medicine is life extension technology. Uh, and I might even take a little bit further to say all science is life extension technology. We already are engaging in life extension technology and not in a small way. I think we've had a little bit of a hiccup in it in the last period where the life, expense, uh, life expectancy of humanity has actually dropped by a couple of months in the last few years. But prior to that, it been steadily going up by about one year for every five or six of the past. And it shows all signs of continuing back on that track. Um, and uh, we're just going to keep getting, living longer. There's nothing really magical about aging. It's a number of factors involved, and we'll get better at fixing them constantly. So we will live to see life extension. Radical life extension technology... We'll see. I, I tend to be of the opinion that unless we luck out and there's something like mitochondria on oxidation issues that might be fixable, that we probably have to do it by any kind of really big extension of, of uh, centuries. Probably have to do that with nanotechnology, but I hope I'm wrong. Hello from Ireland, Isaac. Are you familiar with Lex Friedman? Would you go on his podcast if he invited you on? DB. Um, the name sounds familiar, but it's these days every name sounds familiar to me. Um, uh, usually I go on anybody's podcast if uh, if they ask and they seem like they are polite to their guests and they have an audience that isn't, uh, you know, them and their two best friends, you know. Um, 
it, it depends on time and occasion and circumstance, but uh, for the most part, if somebody wants me on and it sounds like a good conversation, I'm usually glad to have it. Dr. Bird Flew, thank you for your contribution. He says, hi, Isaac. You sometimes mention faster-than-light communication separate from faster-than-light travel. And for me, this separation implies that faster-than-light communication is somehow more probable than faster-than-light travel. Isn't it, in the end, all the same? Could you elaborate on the difference oh, between it. that? Um, you know, when, you, when you're stretching special relativity or general relativity to see if you can squeeze FTL in there somehow... There are a couple of circumstances where fashion-like communication is permitted that travel would not be in terms of being able to send information. I don't happen to agree with those, but usually one of the examples there is that if you had two objects that were completely stationary, like a wormhole, completely stationary relative to each other, you'd be able to send a signal through those two objects. But if they weren't, then you'd have that time travel paradox pop out. And I'm afraid there's not time enough to go into that right now, but that's one of those additional little wiggle room things and as i like to remind people with um with almost everything involving fast and light travel or time travel it's when we say it's possible what we're really saying is we can't completely rule it out for certain just yet so it's, it's kind of like actually if it's possible that the moon is made out of green cheese uh we don't know for sure there might just be a thin layer of dust that would be ball of green cheese on the moon um as to why communication is easier than travel I think the notion is if you can do any of these things at the smallest of scale, um, you know, like something like quantum teleportation, you could teleport an atom with a piece of information on it much more easily. You could, you know, teleport it to a whole human, right? For examples like quantum entanglement, FTL, which is not really viable either. But uh, that's basically a notion why communication would be more available than, than travel. But again, there's always the idea if you can send information, then you can send a person too. Tactical Gamer, when do you think the technological singularity will happen? I mean, this does really depend a lot on what you're defining a technological singularity as. I think someone said in the comments after last live stream that I I'd, uh, slightly unfairly uh, defined it uh, from what Coswell said. Um, and, of course, it does vary a little bit in definition. Usually, the idea behind a technological singularity that people are using popularly is the notion that technology is going to keep improving so fast, and they usually mean computer technology, that there's going to be a point where you basically spit out a, a, a computer god. Um, and that that would happen at some point, that would happen practically overnight. That is not the only definition of the term, and it does get used a lot of different ways. Another idea is that had a little bit more to do with singularity and event horizon was the idea that technology might progress so fast that you couldn't see what was over the horizon. Uh, you, know, you couldn't make any useful predictions about the future at that point. And that's a definition I've always liked a little bit more, in which case I tend to say where technological singularity happens, it depends on what you're looking to see and how, how closely you need to look at it. Um, but I really don't like technological singularities. They've always struck me as way too much do sex machina and way too much of an assumption that something magic is going to happen with you know, these things. Usually when we start looking at them in more detail, more comprehensively, we see that there's a certain logic and some normality to it all. And so I don't think that I'd ever expect a technological singularity to happen, even though almost everything predicted by various technological singularities is something I'd tend to expect on a timeline at some point. We have a question from Master Incredible. How would civilizations on different time-dilated planets, such as around a black hole, adapt to the time differential between planets? I mean, it'd be pretty minimal. Um, you would have to have something that was of the galactic core kind of mass, and maybe even full-blown galaxy mass, black holes, to have planets orbiting around them at time dilations that would be ripped apart by that orbit. Um, and we say galactic core mass. The, the, the black hole in the Snowball Galaxy weighs about 4 million uh, solar masses, uh, all somewhere in one. 
Uh, the Galaxy Selfway is more like a trillion. Uh, so there is a big, big mass difference between those. Um, somewhere between those two levels of mass, uh, you because the black holes have a radius equal to linear to their mass, so you double its mass, you double the radius. Somewhere in that range between a galactic core mass and a full-blown galactic mass black hole, you should have a stable orbit where a planet could exist and still be under time dilation, right? Of significant time dilation, possibly more than one, and you'd have to be on the bigger side to allow more than one. They'd all be dead, though, from living there unless you very carefully engineered that. That's not a place you're going to have natural orbits under time dilation. Now, a natural black hole can have planets around it. There is no reason whatsoever why a black hole cannot have planets orbiting it. It's a big misnomer about supernova that they blow up with such force they destroy every planet in the solar system. They do not. Right? They can. They probably melt the ones like Mercury and Venus, but these are very big stars and their planets are quite far away. Something like Jupiter would survive that. It would have its surface scorched off, but it would turn back into a planet again after a while. It's just a little bit less mass. And so if a supernova goes off and makes a black hole, there's going to be planets orbiting around it. Maybe not real close, but they won't be any place where people could live because there's no light. And they have to be a lot closer than that for them to have any kind of time dilation like that. For those of you who are curious, loosely speaking, you can calculate the time dilation from general relativity or from gravity by figuring out what the escape velocity is from that object at, at whatever distance you're at. And that escape velocity, take that into your normal Lorentzian equation and figure out what your gamma is, your Lorentz factor, for your time dilation. So. Chaos Alchemists 10 says, how would a K3 civilization create a sun-moon for terraforming a rogue planet? You only briefly touched on them in the Making Suns episode. I want to see a real geocentric system. Oh my. Um, the, for those of you who are wondering, and of course you can go see the episode Making Suns for details, sun-moons uh, was one of our example where you take a very big planet and make an artificial moon around, uh, make a moon around it that was an artificial lighting thing so you had a geocentric system. Um, that could be done relatively low-tech. You could do that on a tiny lock planet in the middle of the void, like a rogue planet, by just making a very powerful reactor that was powering a light bulb. Uh, that was orbiting like a moon would, at, or, or when you'd be in geocentric orbit, or not geocentric, but a 24-hour orbit around the thing, uh, which could not be geocentric in that particular context. Um, you could do that with a black hole pretty easily, um, if you could make an artificial black hole that had that level of Hawking radiation, and put something around it so that it was changing the gamma and x-rays that came out of it into something more life-friendly, like sunlight. Um, that would, that's probably the way you would do that most easily, is either by a really big fusion reactor, a really big mirror and laser system pushing light from somewhere else, like your planet's way out there and it gets sent light from a sun that's going through a laser or a big lens to get to a mirror that orbits the planet. Uh, or by something like a black hole or some other power generation system. Uh, at that point in time, it's just creating a lot of light and doing it on something that is uh, orbiting a 24-hour period. I think we got time for one more question or two more questions. Yeah, I was going to try to fit in just a couple more okay, here. Thank you, Joseph Viscoletti, for your donation, and he would like to know if you think we will reach a state by the end of this century where we eliminate aging and disease. Probably not eliminate, but I think by the end of the century that people will start being very serious about thinking about the idea that you're not going to die of old age or disease. Yeah. Okay, we have another contribution here from Tom Michael. Good day to you both. Thank you. Considering all that is going on today, do you think you might consider doing an episode on education for the children of the future and how the techniques of teaching, learning, and studying may change? Uh, I know we've touched on that in a few yeah. of the past live streams. In, in a little bit here and there, yeah. A future of education video, um, well, 
Uh, my wife's been on the State Board of Education for Ohio for the last eight years, so it's one of those things where when you're living with an export, you're sometimes a little bit more nervous about making mistakes. Uh, <laughs> truth be told, I'm a little hesitant to do a future on education episode just because it would be a question whether you're doing a really close look or really far out one, but it's one of those episodes that's been on the back plate boiler for a long time. See if we can get a couple more questions in. Yeah, I just I had two more. Um, Eric Johansson, also, uh, thank you for your generous donation. And he would like to know if you personally believe that powerful relativistic projectiles could be effectively and reliably countered. Yes. You'd have a general idea where they were coming from. We're talking about things like RKMs. Somebody's shooting those out at you from another solar system. You get your radar out there a long ways ahead, and you have something ready to shoot something in the right direction of them. It doesn't take much. A little pebble in the right spot's going to do it. They're actually relatively easily detected and countered if you're set up for it, but they still are, like anything else that's a weapon, very powerful. So, not magic. Okay, and thank you also, Mike, for your contribution. And he said, how do you think governments will evolve if we intend to become sustainable? Will that be at the national level or the international level? Um, it's If it is, it's going to have to be at the national level. I uh, never count on anything at the international level being a situation where you could really expect it to work out well. You know, the, the smaller the solution is, the easier it is to actually get people to implement it. Uh, local sustainability is always thing to focus on first. If you can get that working, then then you can do that locally and other people can start doing it too. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm going to squeak in one more mm-hmm. from Jay Baptiste. Do you think a planet in which seasons are all messed up and irregular is possible, like in the Game of Thrones? I mean, we touched on yeah. that before, They're the irregular time frame. In, uh, in the Red Dwarfs episode in January, too, we look at some interesting ones there. And I remember checking recently to see if Winds of Winter was actually making any progress, and apparently it'll be out next year. I remember hearing that a couple of years ago. Um, we don't really know what happens with the weather. They only kind of details set out to be able to look at it. I think J- George R. R. Martin has said that it's a magic-based effect as opposed to any sort of weird planetary setup, but you could absolutely have long winters and short winters where it was very cold every decade and uh, a little bit cold every winter, which is what they have there kind of. But having a regular cycle, that would be hard to pull off. I could put together a system that could do that for most setups, though, but yes and no. <laughs> so... I uh, will go ahead and sign off there for today. For today. Um, we have another episode coming out on Thursday, and we hope to see you there. Thank you very much. And have a great week. And have a great So that will wrap us up for the day. I want to thank everyone for joining us, and again if we didn't get to your question, feel free to post it as a comment below and I'll try to get to it this evening. Also you can continue the conversation at any of the forums on Facebook, Reddit, Discord, or our website IsaacArthur.net. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you Thursday.